You're listening to the Clonmel Junction Arts Festival podcast, which takes place from the 3rd to the 11th of July. Hello, you're very welcome to the last episode this year for the Clonmel Junction podcast. I want to congratulate the festival team for running such a wonderful week of arts entertainment live music, spoken word, theatre and art installations all around the town to name just a few of the highlights. I can't wait for next year's festival in July already and what I hope and expect to be a fully open society. Keep an eye out for season three of my Travel Tales with Fergal podcast which comes out in September. Today on our podcast we have my Travel Tales with Fergal live interview with debut author Louise Nealon. The podcast was recorded live in the amazing new Junction Dome, which I can't wait to see full of people next year at the festival. Louise Nealon chats today about her experiences of finding an agent, to writing her debut novel, Snowflake, to getting it published and going to number one in the bestseller chart. It's been a real rollercoaster year. This interview will be of interest to anybody who loves writing as we delve into the writing process and creativity. And now we've the live recording of Louise Nealon and myself from the Junction Dome. Hello, my name is Fergal O'Keefe and you're very welcome to the Travel Tales with Fergal podcast live. I'm delighted to say that my guest today is author Louise Nealon, who just had the most amazing year. From getting a book deal to having the film and TV rights snapped up by Element Pictures to publishing her debut novel, Snowflake, which then went straight to number one in the bestseller charts and all in one year. Just last weekend, there was a review in The Observer of the book, which I thought was the best review that I've seen. And it said, it, Snowflake is a coming of age novel, but with magic and darkness and pushing through the pain towards healing. Here's to art that celebrates while never glamorizing the hard emotional work that goes into growing up. Louise, you're very welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks a million, Fergal. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here in real life. Exactly. The last time I talked to you was over Zoom, with our yeah. first podcast, and uh, so it's lovely to actually be here in this lovely venue, isn't it? Gorgeous. How yeah. does it feel to be getting out and about? Really weird, uh, but in a lovely way. Uh, yeah, I came down to Clumbell yesterday um, and did a few events around the, yeah. I did the People event yeah. uh, in yesterday, uh, and it was like a, kind of like a walking tour of the place, but there was like actors uh, giving you notes and stuff, and it was just, Gorgeous, and I actually got really emotional at the end of it. It was uh, it was like being in a play, but walking about, um, and you're the only audience member. So it was really, really nice, and the, the dome's amazing as well. And I love Clamell; it's been really welcoming. Exactly, well, that's great to hear. It's your first time, is it, yeah, Clamell? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Exactly, great yeah. excuse to get here. So yeah. I want to bring you back to March last year when you got a phone call from your agent, Marianne and it was to tell you that you had a book deal and also in the same week you got a TV and film rights deal. So that was an amazing week, wasn't it? Yeah, um, I'm still processing it to be honest. So uh, I got, I, I went for, um, we were meant to be going for a walk, myself and my sister, and I'd handed the manuscript of the novel in to Marianne and she said that she had it out in submission. I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> uh, so I wasn't really, I was expecting something, but not as quickly or uh, like the, the manuscript was finished very quickly in the end and I submitted it and, and then she rang me um, 
we were on the way home from Hope after picking up Catherine's boyfriend from the airport. This was like all before uh, COVID really kicked yeah. off. And we were um, going down the motorway and Marianne said about the book deal and then she said uh, like a, a number of, of a sum of money and I nearly dropped the phone. <laughs> um, and that's the moment that my life completely and utterly yeah. changed. It's great um, to be able to make a, a living from I what I love to do. Yeah. Um, and it's great for my parents not to be worried about me anymore. Like, uh, like there's no neighbors or well-meaning people calling my mother, offering me civil servants jobs, or job applications, or <laughs> you know, know, or or working in the toll booth um, just to just to get by. So it's great for them um, that they know that I'm finally um, doing what I love and um, comfortable in it. Like I have loads of friends that you know have, are writing or in the pro you know doing books, but it's a di you know you're really afraid to ask them about it. So it's great to get the validation, isn't it? Yeah, and and I would be, I would have been like that for like more than ten years. Like my like I'm thirty now. I say more than ten years, and everyone's like, so since you were twelve. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but like my friends from home, uh, they're obviously like interested in the writing or whatever, but they'd. Uh, they'd be very uh, wary sort of like approaching it because nobody knows really how it works and uh, they're nearly afraid to ask because I always tell them it's going terribly. Um, so it's great that such positive news about it has come out and people are able to celebrate with me. I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting my life to change and for me to feel great. Yeah. But uh, the added bonus is that like the community around me feels great and like even I went down and signed a few book in my, books in my local GAA and all the kids came up, well, all the kids, one kid, <laughs> came over at halftime to get her mom's book signed and I, yeah. that absolutely made, made my year really. Um, yeah. So yeah, people have been so, so great. Bit. And you're a camogie player, aren't you? Yeah. But I mean, I, I was talking to you before about this, that, um, you know, that your community or particularly say the camogie group, they're so proud of you, aren't they? Yeah, it's really nice um, because, like, I'm not that great a camogie player, <laughs> so at least I'm good at something. Like, <laughs> um, like I barely made it onto the team. Um, I was uh, cornerback in the end, and I lo I loved it. But I think I was saying it to you before. I don't think I play camogie only. It was for my local team, yeah. you know. And I remember when I started in college, I was like, maybe I'll make friends by uh, joining the, the camogie team there. And it was just a different sort of thing. It's not like when I'm at home, it's like playing with family. Yeah. Um, and we've known each other since we were kids. Um, and I've grown up at the, like looking at the older players play and kind of idolizing them. And then when you make the same team as them, uh, it's really, really special. And uh, yeah, even Mark and my old babysitter, and she's four kids. <laughs> and she still roasted me in training. So uh, yes, it's great. And we've new clubhouse opened and uh, new like facilities and stuff. So um, yeah, I can't wait to get back into the clubhouse. Exactly. Like the COVID has gone away and uh, have a shower. <laughs> and when you think like last March, it w like what a time for it to happen because it was just as the pandemic happened. Yeah. So that must have been a bit surreal then, was it? Yeah, I think my brother said it. He was like, trust you, like the whole world falls apart and you, you finally find your feet. Yeah. <laughs> it felt like, yeah, it was seismic. It was a seismic change in my life. And um, I was kind of lucky in a way that the whole world uh, was going through something yeah. <laughs> um, big at the, 
at the same time, so like my outer life or outer reality sort of reflected what was going on uh, internally in that like I was readjusting to a new normal anyways. And I think it would have been a bit different if life went on as normal for everyone else and I was like trying to scramble and find my feet. It's it's a great thing uh, to happen, but it's change, you know, and all changes. Yeah, you're kind of awkward and clunky with it. Um, so yeah, I'm still I'm yeah. still finding my feet, like interviews and stuff. Like that. <laughs> and I, I mentioned um, that week, like you also your with TV film rights were signed as well the same week, yeah. with Element Pictures, yeah. who are you know great Irish company, famous yeah. obviously with normal people and conversations with friends coming out. So that must have uh, and normal people just came out actually around that it time. Was after that actually was so it? I, I got I got the deal. Um, so my agent Marianne is like the most magical person in ever. Um, she's like a really like great businesswoman, but when you meet her, you're just like you you can't be real. She's like a fairy godmother or whatever. And the first time I had uh, coffee with her, um, I went I went home. I I got a short story published in the newspaper, and she read it, and she was like, uh, "Will you have coffee with me?" And I was like, "Yeah, grand." And then I kind of googled her name, and I was like, "Oh Jesus, she's she's a big." big gun um, and then uh, I, I had coffee with her and I was like oh you, you, you're too good to be true I mentioned out your father what he said oh yeah so I went home and uh, and dad uh, dad goes did you give her any money <laughs> <laughs> and I was like no he thought he was she was a con artist <laughs> for what I had been saying um, and uh, like lucky for me she wasn't because I'm so gullible I go with anything um, but yeah, I would say to people, because a couple of people have, have come to me like looking for advice around getting agents or whatever. Um, like I have never given a bob to Marianne. Like she makes commission off whatever I uh, like, whatever I sell or whatever. And she's she does business deals for me, uh, which is great because I have no idea how to do them. Um, and and then she makes like whatever percentage of that. But I've never like. I've never spent any money trying to become a writer. Um, I've never. Uh, I suppose it's different if you're like self-publishing and stuff. Yeah. Um, then you're you're going into different territory. But if any agent asks for money off you up front or anything, just run a million miles away. Yeah. And it was an article. Um, it was a, it was a short story, wasn't it? That, that you won short story competition. Yeah, I suppose that's kind of where um, that that kind of uh, started the ball rolling mm. for a chain of events that happened. So. Uh, I did an MA up in Queens and I loved it. I did English and Trinity first um, and I really liked the course but I was a disaster socially, like I didn't really have any friends <laughs> and uh, I was kind of like wandering around Dublin on my own and I live on a dairy farm and uh, I'm only 40 minutes away from the centre of town but uh, I kind of got a culture shock when I went to Trinity for the first time um, and I dropped out and went back again because I love the course so much. Um, but I didn't really make any friends. And then when I went up to Belfast, I had the experience in that masters. I did a creative writing masters. I hadn't like the experience that I thought I'd have in Trinity, where I found friends for life and like kindred spirits nearly. And uh, then I finished that uh, masters, and uh, I started entering writing competitions, just like the way that you'd enter the lotto, um, not expecting to win anything. And then I got an email saying that I had won. And I thought it was spam, and then I rang the number, and it wasn't spam. Uh, and this is before, like, it was my first story that it was published. So um, 
it was a huge deal for me and then they put me up in a hotel in Cork and I got to do a writing workshop um, and it was amazing and then uh, the Irish Times reprinted that and that's how I found my agent um, so that's kind of how it all started so there's a lot of there was a lot of luck involved for me I would say so she actually saw that Irish Times article yeah and the headline wasn't it was like oh yeah it was like a so when the story won I had entered two stories and I was like which one is it because one of them was like a short story that's actually ended up as a chapter in the novel and another one the wake and oh, wow. the, the other one was um, what feminism is and everyone forgets the title because the headline in the Irish Times was um, Irish bad sex story <laughs> and I remember my mom being on the phone to my aunties and being like so proud and she was like just google Louise Nealon and bad sex and you'll find her <laughs> and I was like oh Jesus <laughs> but I've been so lucky with my family that they've been just so so supportive um, because it's, it's weird having a writer in the family, yeah. I'd say, for them. And like at that stage, w w how much of the book had you written? Um, oh, that's a good question, actually. It's hard to know. Uh, I would say about a third of, of the book was written. So th the book was written very slowly o o over 10 years or so. Um, but it, it only kind of picked up speed in the last couple of years. Uh, so I wrote about two thirds of it um, in the last two years before it. And to be honest, meeting Marianne really encouraged me to keep writing it. I don't think it would have been very easy for me to, um, if I was any good at any other job, <laughs> <laughs> I would have done that. Yeah. You know, I, like I really wanted to be a, a secondary school English teacher because I loved my secondary school yeah. English teacher, um, but I wasn't sure if I would have um, the discipline or I wouldn't, I wasn't sure that I'd have the authority in the classroom that was needed for, um, to be a teacher. And a lot of my friends were teachers and they found it quite difficult. And, and they were like, if you really, it's kind of like a vocation. They were yeah. like, if, you, if you're doing it as a backup plan, that's sort of like not, yeah. not the, the way to go into things. So this was, writing has always been the thing that I, I wanted to do um, and I, I tried to do loads of different other things like I tried to be a bookseller I worked in a bookshop loved it but I was just reading the books and when I was putting them out <laughs> like I was a disaster um, and uh, tried to uh, be a waitress and I have great respect for um, people in the service industry because it's hard work and long hours and um, I think the skills required uh, to be a good waitress or a good host even um, or a manager or anything in that field is vastly under under uh, valued in our society definitely well yeah someone who is all, I grew up in a bar and yeah. I always worked there and I always said that for getting used to uh, talking to people all different types of people and and different you know learning about them and different yeah. stories yeah. and it, it's a great way I think for any writer for inspiration yeah absolutely but like I was I was grand at that bit I like I got to know people <laughs> and stuff and my social skills really developed but I was so clumsy like I'd be dropping plates and uh, and glasses and the chefs hated me because I always got orders wrong I set I nearly set the uh, restaurant on fire because I put a napkin over a candle and then turned around and made an open kitchen and the oh. chefs were like no way so you turn around <laughs> and uh, yeah so I, I really um, 
I was able to develop definitely the, the social side and, and looking at the way that people treat you as well. True. Or I remember I had a, a, one guy whistled at me for, for a bill once and I was kind of like, here, do you, thank you. But you can't say anything, obviously. Um, but there's a great, actually, there's a great film called Life is Beautiful. Uh, have you, have you yeah, seen I know, yeah, yeah brilliant. And, uh, the guy at the start, he's a, he's a waiter. And uh, the advice that his dad, I think it's his dad or his uncle, an older member of the family anyway, gives him is that to be a waiter, you kind of have to be a sun player. Uh, so you have to stand up straight and never, never bow too much. Um, because like you're not, you're not a slave. You're not a slave to anybody. You're, you're the authority there, True. you know. And your, your English teacher, what is her name? Because the last time you were on the yeah. podcast, I didn't ask you. Sarah Butler is her name. And she's a writer as well. And she's the first writer that I like came across in, in real life. Yeah. Um, so she's been a massive, massive inspiration. And when I left school and dropped out of college, actually, she got my number and invited me for coffee. Uh, we ended up having lunch. And uh, that was like the hand of God reaching out for me because I felt really lost and uh, I, she, she was just, she was incredible. She didn't know at the time how much she helped me. She does now yeah. uh, <laughs> because I mention her in every interview. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Which is I, great. I think that's yeah, brilliant because yeah. I don't think um, quite often teachers, it's good that they hear that because they don't know the influence that they have on people for good or bad, you know. And they really do. Yeah, and the yeah. good teachers particularly, you yeah. know. Yeah, but even my friends who like didn't do English in college or had no real interest in reading, they got stuff out of her class as well, and they got a love of reading out of her class. So, yeah, it's really stuck with us. And you told me before a great one, which I thought was brilliant, and every teacher should do is she she would teach you a party trick. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that she did, oh, she can't even remember this. <laughs> one of the things she did was uh, we had to learn a poem for class, and she was like, uh, "If you leave my class with anything, you just." You need a party trick, especially if you can't sing or like tell a joke, like recite a poem. Um, and yeah, and I still have um, a Michael Longley poem that I learned off air, and it's, yeah. it's incredible. Don't ask me to say it, yeah. I forget it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so you know, um, for the like the, the writing process, then, like when you were actually writing the book, yeah. you know, like what, what's your inspiration? Like, is it you know, do you go into a room and lock yourself in every day or for hours, or what do you do? How does that work? Yeah, I remember when my grandma was still alive, uh, she lived beside us, um, and because we lived in the family home, and she lived in like her house was a joint ours. And I remember going into her and explaining I had won a, a writing retreat um, with that prize in Cork, actually. It was a, it's an amazing prize, it's called the Sean O'Feilan Short Story Competition and uh, everyone should enter, so that and Francis McManus as well. Yeah. And the Moth, um, the Moth magazine has a, has a great competition as well. Um, but I got a writing retreat out of that and I was trying to explain to her what, what it was. So I was like, so I'm going away and uh, someone's going to cook for me and it's in like really like peaceful surroundings or whatever. She was like, yeah, but you, all, you have all that here. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, why would you be going to West Cork for that? Uh, and she has she has a point because I was really I'm really lucky with my um, family situation. So I grew up on a farm, um, and so I was never short of, of work. If I was out of work, um, I do a f like a few milkings. I'm, I'm by no means a dairy maid, um, and my brother does like the 
Trojan work of the firm and I never give him credit that he deserves in, in interviews so I have to say that um, but yeah uh, but I was I was mostly in my room in my childhood bedroom mum be making me dinners uh, I'd make my own tea and coffee now <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I was just really lucky and like I didn't have much money um, and I didn't really have much financial freedom but there was always home um, and I really, I say in the acknowledgements to the book that I had to go home to write, write the novel, and I really did. Um, if I was working in, in Belfast, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have written it. True. Um, so, yeah, the countryside really, really helped. I, like, it wasn't a case of locking myself into a room for hours and end. Like, do you do, like, do you, I always hear writers talking about, um, you know, getting up at five in the morning Absolutely and not. knocking out no. 2,000 words. And, and it scares everyone, I think. Yeah, my sister laughs at me. Talking really seriously about my writing process, yeah. <laughs> and she's like, "Louise, all you do is nap and cry," yeah. <laughs> and I really do. I, do. I have loads of naps. Go for a walk, play with my little uh, niece Sophie. If I do, if I do an hour, a good hour of writing, um, and there's, it's amazing how much you can get done in an hour. Um, and it makes me sound very lazy because other people have like nine to five jobs or whatever. But my excuse is that uh, like writing is, it's quite emo like there's emotional work involved in it. And there's um, like there's stuff that I do around writing that uh, is crucial to it. Like it sounds really selfish, but like I do like yoga in the morning. Uh, I do a bit of writing, go for a walk. Uh, and it, like it kind of, the routine changes every day. Um, but really, and there's a lot of like pottering around on the internet, you know. Of course. Um, but if I if I set my alarm for an hour every day and do a good hour, um, that really works for me. And uh, I, I heard yeah. a, I heard a great one with Kevin Barry or an interview recently, and he was saying that you know he's a shed and he goes out to his shed, but he said he could be sitting there for hours and he's like a little rubber ball and he's just bouncing it oh, off yeah. the wall and he said he might do 20 minutes yeah. but he goes out every day and spends the hours there you need to be there waiting yeah. yeah yeah and that's what you say getting the deal does isn't it it gives you the space to be able to do that yeah but it, it feels it still feels really surreal and i just feel incredibly lucky i feel like someone's going to tap me on the shoulder every time every time someone rings me I look at the phone and I'm like, oh, this is someone saying it's all up, it's all up now, <laughs> the game is up. Uh, <laughs> I have to go back and milk yeah. cows. <laughs> I, I was actually wondering, because every, every time I write something about you, I always call you the novelist Louise oh, Nealon. Yeah. And I'm wondering, <laughs> do you read that and go, God, <laughs> you know? Oh. That seems strange. Yeah, um, I haven't, I, I don't really read things about me. Because uh, uh, I, I started reading Goodread reviews before the book came out, and some of them were really, really nice, and some of them were like awful. Like, uh, and my sisters were kind of like, "Yeah, it's not good for your mental health to be like googling your name every day." Uh, and and that and uh, there was a time where like I I get up from bed, do a couple of interviews, and then I'd be like the adrenaline go and then I completely crashed yeah. so that was like my day and that's not really healthy you yeah. know and you kind of have to do it for a couple of weeks um, but it's great doing stuff like this because it's not like it's kind of like a, a little holiday as well. <laughs> yeah. you get to come down and you know, I know. Um, and, and spend time in a place so uh, yeah I feel really really lucky 
And you know, you talked before about writing. You say when you're moving or swimming, sea swimming as well. Yeah. Do you get that's where you get inspiration? Is that right? Yeah, inspiration comes from everywhere, really. Does it? Um, like, if I'm trying to find inspiration, I won't find it. <laughs> that's when it like eludes you. Um, but uh, like we talked about um, like people watching and stuff. Yeah. My dad is like a. Uh, he's an awful person to go to a restaurant with. <laughs> I mean, he's he's a great person to go to a restaurant with. He's, he's a lovely man. But uh, when we go for family dinners, he's always looking around at other, other tables and seeing what other people are doing. It's just pure nosiness. Um, and my sister has it as well. And I don't. And uh, and you were saying that that's... Uh, I was amazed when you said that. Yeah. And, and you say that you look around as well. All the time. Yeah. And also, I just read a quote there about a week ago, Bono saying that... Uh, an artist is a person that looks at the other table. Yeah, so. absolutely, absolutely not. I'm looking at my food. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's, uh, but then that makes me question. I'm like, oh, am I a real writer then, or am I a real <laughs> artist? And I used to like uh, read. I remember reading Stephen King's on writing book, um, and he said, uh, for, to be a writer, you need to write 1,500 words a day, and. Like, that is a phenomenal amount of words for me. If I get 200, 200 words out a day, I'm like, this is great. Um, but I was so impressionable back then. I was like an advice-aholic around writing. I was like, anyone, give me advice, anyone. Because it's such a, it's a profession that like, I knew nothing about, and it's so hard to have any sort of structure on it. You kind of have to make up your own. So I was just trying to adapt any, any person. So I was like, Stephen King, I'm, I'm going to write 1,500 words a day. And I couldn't. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't. So then I thought, okay, I'm not a writer then, or I'm a, I'm a failure. Um, but like, yeah, it, like growing up, it kind of gives me a, a perspective of like, um, that's not the way that I do it. And maybe if I say that, uh, it'll give other people the freedom or the license to be like, oh, okay, like she doesn't, she's not a nosy <laughs> person at a restaurant and she still writes. So exactly. I find it really, um, I have to cut myself off from people a lot. I find other people, like it's nearly too much uh, when, you, when I'm watching other people. But you know, I think it's great that you're saying that because I do think that line about 2,000 words a day like scares the life out of people yeah. and everybody's different you know yeah. like how they write you know and when you're writing do you um, do you edit it loads of times or how does that work you know when you write just say you write a bit do you keep editing and changing it or how's yeah. that yeah yeah um, yeah that's interesting I I don't notice myself editing I, I think Dermot Healy had a great Dermot Healy's Amazing. Mm. He's a big influence of you, isn't he? Yeah, he wrote a gold song. It's probably my favourite novel, my favourite Irish novel anyways. Um, and he has a great analogy of um, building a stone wall in Connemara. Um, and it's really slow and you, you're not sure which rocks sit right together and you take out the rock and you put another one in. And it, it's quite um, meditative and a bit boring and the weather's sometimes awful. Uh, but you keep going, and as long as you keep going, the wall's going to be built. Um, and, and I like that analogy because it's, uh, it's kind of, it's, it sees writing as kind of like an organic thing. It's not something mechanical. Um, and like you're working with, with, um, with stuff that you can't really shape, like in the same way like that some stones won't fit together, like some characters or scenes won't, won't sit right. And, and so you're like, okay, so I'm going to have to like reshuffle that around. 
um, and and yeah, I enjoy I enjoy editing and, and going back over it. Um, uh, but I don't have a structure of okay, I'm just going to uh, write this now. And sometimes I write 800 words without editing, and then I go back, especially if it's like a conversation or a scene. I was like, I'll just get it done, and then I'll and then I'll go back. And sometimes I write two sentences, and I I work on them again and again and again until they seem right in my head. Um, actually, now that I have you here, just another question I've always wanted to ask a writer is, if you're doing a book, do you start and go to? I often hear them going about the writing, and they don't know what's going to happen next, or do you write bits and pieces and then put it all together, do you know, in different yeah. sections of the book? Yeah. So yeah, when I was. Um, when I was writing, uh, like I, I call them scenes. They're not chapters. They're, I call them like different scenes of the book. I was, I had in my head, okay, that's coming after this. But like the stone wall, it shifts. Yeah. You know. So um, I had Debbie in Snowflake. I had Debbie going to college in the middle of the book, and it was only quite late in the process that I realised, no, for in order for this story to work, I, I need to tell the caravan story first, and then. The, the next chapter is her start in college. And so those, those two threads run side, side by side rather than home life and then exactly. college life, which I had for ages. Uh, but it, the great thing about that is like, you're the first reader of the story. Uh, so it's great when stuff like that happens and you're like, oh, oh, this is, this is different and this, this sparks. And it's a great feeling when you're, you're um, editing and suddenly something works because, and you can have that feeling and then, and then the day after be like, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, there's so many times where I was like, oh yeah, like I had an idea where Debbie was write, writing Xanthi letters all the time and that, that was the way the story was going to be published. And for, um, for about a week, I was really high on, on the, and my poor friends got emails from me being like, and this is why it works so well and blah, blah, blah. And then the next, the next week I was like, no, no, back, like, back to the drawing board. How does that work then, say, with your editor? Does your editor give you advice then yeah. about that or how does yeah. that work? So, um, yeah, I worked with, with Margaret Steve, my editor. She was really amazing. Um, and, uh, but by the time I got, got the manuscript to Manila Press, um, my publishers, it was kind of ha like Marianne um, put me in touch with an editor who worked on it with me before sending it out on submission. Okay. Um, and I can't remember what his name was, but he's lovely. Daniel Bulger, I think his name was. He was really, really encouraging, and he was brilliant. Um, and uh, and then what, by the time it got to Margaret, she kind of saw it as, okay, there's some things that we need to do, but I think it's nearly there. And I was I was reluctant to let it go. I was I was kind of like, no, no, no. There's lots to change. It's not. So it's you know, I, I go sometimes. You can, so I sense from you that. You don't get offended if, if suggestions changes. You, you actually like that. You like to. Oh be, yeah. yeah. I, if it makes the story better, like go and I have a sense now that like that, which is why like I don't read stuff about the story anymore. Um, like I, I kind of have nothing to do with it now. You know, yeah. it's out on its own. Um, and I had great fun with the characters, but I, it's like I am not my book, and I'm not like if. A critique of the book is is um, someone's opinion, and when you when you sit down and you open a book, it's not it's nothing to do with the author. Like you, 
I write so that the book exists separate to me. Exactly. So you, you can't, like I look at the book and I can see like so many flaws in it. So it's, it's not you but that they're critiquing, it's the book. Oh yeah, and which is completely fair yeah. enough. Yeah. You know, um, and and the reader finishes the book as well, so it belongs to them. The book doesn't belong to me; it belongs to the reader, and what experiences they bring to it, and uh, and what they make of the characters. And and I remember, like in college, like I started reading, started reading Middlemarch by George Eliot, and I was like, well, like I don't know why everyone loves this, and then. I think about two years later I read it and I was like, oh my God. And it was because I had come to that like period of my life that I needed, like I, I needed that book at that moment. I get you. And you know that, so your deal is a two book deal. So yeah. do you think you've learned an awful lot from that process? I for definitely the think so, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't want to be sitting here like they're like, oh yeah, it's going to take another 10 years. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, I've, I've given myself uh, the summer off to uh, enjoy yeah. the process of um, the book being published and stuff. But I had a chat with my editor, Margaret Steed, about the second book. I'm excited about it. And I think something that I've learned from the fir writing the first book is that uh, like, it's not it's not helpful in any way for me to doubt myself or for me to um, have anxiety uh, over something that's not yet written. Um, so I know that when I start writing the second book, it won't come out as a fully formed book. It won't be perfect. Um, and it's going to take a lot of work for, to make it um, readable <laughs> and uh, good or... Uh, because people think that books just happen by magic, but they don't. Of course. Uh, there's so much, um, so much work and craft that goes into it. Um, and actually, could you just give us a quick 30 seconds, just for people that haven't read it yet and yeah. are listening, 30 second synopsis oh, of the book, of, of Snowflake. Snowflake. Yeah, so Snowflake is a story about um, an 18 year old called Debbie, and she lives on a rural farm in, um, in Kildare in Ireland, uh, like me. <laughs> She goes to Trinity, like me, uh, but where she differs from me and Debbie differs is that she has a different family um, than I do. So she has, uh, she's an only child, she doesn't know who her dad is, um, but she uh, is good friends with her uncle Billy who lives in a caravan at the back of um, their house. And her mother Maeve is really interested in dreams and everyone in the village thinks that Maeve has kind of a, like a screw loose. Um, and she's kind of like the, the local joke, nearly. Um, and uh, Debbie has quite a strained relationship with her mom because her mom thinks that she's passed on um, a dreaming ability to, to Debbie. She thinks that she can dream other people's dreams. Um, whereas Billy assures Debbie that that's nonsense and to go to, to, go to university and kind of like make, make something of herself in order to escape the same fate as, as her mother. Um, but when Debbie goes to college, she finds it really difficult. Um, like her experience in the city is very alienating. Um, but she finds a friend called Xanthi, and Xanthi kind of tries to help her navigate um, her new life. Um, so that's, that's the book. And you know, like your main character is obviously is Debbie, who you know works in the or lives in a farm and goes to Trinity like yourself. Yeah. And then there's the mother Maeve. And I've heard you saying that you actually feel closer to the mother. People might think that it's Debbie, but you actually feel closer. Yeah, 
Uh, yeah, Is that because so of the nettles and <laughs> going out to the... <laughs> I don't dance in the nettles naked. No. <laughs> um, uh, Maeve is kind of like a pariah in the book, and people, uh, I, I find it really interesting. It's great to have readers, finally, and <laughs> yeah. spending like 10 years like alone with them. And like, it's kind of like introducing your invisible friends to people. Um, and everyone loves Billy, and Billy's really charming and, and funny. And everyone's like, yeah, Maeve's a bit mad though, isn't she? And I'm always like, yeah, she is. But I, <laughs> I also think that there's a lot of Maeve in, in all of us. Of course, yeah. Um, and Maeve is kind of like a, she doesn't get a lot of lines in the book. And I find her really difficult to write um, because she originated in my head as, as uh, a projection of how I could end up um, if, if my mental health um, wasn't addressed. Um, so I was really obsessed with dreams in my in my twenties, and and the idea for the books spawned from that. But in order for the book to work as a story, I had to kind of give Maeve that obsession and kind of like uh, contain it within her. Um, so yeah, that's I I think that's why I feel close to her. And her bedroom, the tabernacle, is uh, my bedroom's very similar to hers in that it has loads of. Um, quotes on the wall and and postcards and stuff and uh, yeah I just I have a very soft spot for and uh, Billy you know everyone who reads the book I think really likes he's a real character yeah. and I, I it was interesting I remember you saying in an interview that uh, you based him on uh, Tommy Tiernan or roughly based him on Tommy Tiernan yeah yeah so yeah um, <laughs> I can't believe I said that yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah I was a uh, as a teenager, I was uh, a big fan of uh, Tommy Tiernan's stand-up, and I was rolling around the floor laughing uh, at him. Um, but what struck me was, I really wanted to be his friend, but you can't be a friend, like a 15-year-old girl can't <laughs> be a friend with like a middle-aged man or whatever. Um, so I just, that's where the character of Billy came. Um, and it, it started off as conversations between um, Billy and it was another girl. It wasn't Debbie. I forget her name. Um, but it was, it was basically me having conversations with uh, Tommy Tiernan, who I imagined Tommy Tiernan to be. But I, I called him Billy. Um, and then, as with all characters, Billy kind of like took on a life of his own. And I'd say like I sent Tommy Tiernan the book, and I'd say if he reads it, he wouldn't really recognise himself in. In, 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 he wouldn't recognise himself in Billy, yeah. but, uh, but that's where the inspiration came from. And like Ireland's tiny, so the question I want to ask you is like, you, you sent him the book, did he get it? Do he you did. know? Did he? He did. So uh, he, yeah, he, uh, he sent me a message on Twitter. I remember checking my Twitter notifications. I had one like, notification, one message. I was like, oh, lovely. So I looked at the notification and I was like, Tommy Tiernan followed you on Twitter and nearly lost my life. <laughs> And then I looked at the message and it was Tommy Tiernan and, and he was like, oh Jesus, do you mind if I give you a call and we'll have a chat or whatever. And I nearly dropped the phone and, uh, and then I went home and I was like, ah no, it can't be him, it can't be him. And his account isn't verified on Twitter. <laughs> so, um, so like we were taking bets to see like who it was and, uh, and then he rang me. Uh, I woke up to a missed call from him, a classic, I was asleep, <laughs> uh, and I rang him back. and. Uh, 
and he answered and yeah. we had a lovely lovely chat about books about Dermot Healy and uh, John Moriarty and um, and he actually he didn't get the book uh, my publisher sent him a book and I was like uh, give us like your postcode or whatever he was like just send it to Tommy Tiernan like he's yeah. going to get, <laughs> exactly. get here Tommy Tiernan Galway that yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd say he just didn't want me. Oh, was that like on the phone? What was it a bit like being on his uh, TV show? Absolutely. Like I know, I know him from. I have a comedy club, so he, really? he does it regularly, and uh, I, I always say this. Anytime I talk to him, like he gets more information out of you than anybody else. Yeah, I, I, he's one of those people you just want to tell your whole life yeah. story to. I remember a couple of times on the phone, he was like, "I'm not following you," <laughs> because it was like confession. Yeah, I was, exactly. like, I was like, I need to tell you everything. Yeah. Uh, but he's a lovely, yeah, he's a lovely way about him. Um, he, he gives you a lot of space. Uh, this is from one phone call now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, it was exactly like hearing him on a podcast, only you're able to talk back to him, yeah. uh, which was very fun. Surreal too, it. I'd say. Oh yeah, and then I went downstairs. I was in like I was in bed, and then I went downstairs, and I was like, yeah, I just came off the phone to Tommy Thurman, and I was like, what? <laughs> So the book, you know, you, you talk about obviously the character Debbie goes to college and then with your mother, but mental health is a big issue or a big topic. And yeah. I, I saw a line today actually, it was like, you said, I'm trying to get at a psychological realism. So that was a really interesting uh, yeah. phrase. Yeah. You know, like it's very important to you, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose like um, in interviews and talking about the book, uh, one of the big reasons why I wrote the book was because I wanted to, um, I wanted to give it to my 18-year-old self. Yeah. I wanted to give a story to uh, my teenage self going to college who was terrified and, um, and a bit lost. Uh, I kind of wanted to represent that and also for her to see herself in it. Um, and I think I've done that and that's like, no, like I know the flaws with the with the story and 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 the craft. Obviously, it's my first novel, yeah. but I'm incredibly proud of myself for for representing that like young woman or whatever. Um, and uh, and yeah, I. I but find it, it, you know, it's not just for um, the young, like just say for people who are reading your book. Yeah. I think it's also for parents of, of yeah. maybe people that are going to college because yeah. they can maybe have a better understanding of the issues that they're going through. And it's funny, when I, when I talk to people about the book, they're like, is it a young adult book? And I'm like, <laughs> no, uh, I don't think so. Like, uh, no. But it's, it's funny how people like want to um, categorise it or like box it off into something that they, they know. Um, and yeah, it's something about our generation or our society now that uh, if, you, if you write about teenagers it's it's a story for teenagers whereas like I don't know portrait of an artist is a young man uh, James Joyce that was about a very young young man and that wasn't YA you know <laughs> YA didn't exist exactly now. like actually when I was doing the little bio for this talk I said you know it's for people that um are about to make that journey or who already have yeah so because that's the thing you know every like a lot of people have that experience of going to college and it's such yeah. a dramatic thing in people's lives isn't it and it's lovely to get messages from people that's the nicest thing actually yeah. uh, from people who have read the book and remember one one lady messaged me on twitter and she said uh, i went to trinity uh, 
like 20 years ago now and uh, that scene with uh, Debbie in the she's in the to toilet cubicle and she's looking at the graffiti on the wall and she was like that was me 20 years ago and she was like only we were allowed to smoke back then so <laughs> I was smoking in the toilet cubicle as well um, and it's not just a Trinity thing there was people from like UCC and NUIG and they're like that's that was me in college that was like because you go from being a big fish in in a, in a yeah. small fish in a big no big fish small yeah. pond yeah. Uh, and then and then it's complete fish out of water experience especially and for Irish people yeah well. and even we're a tiny country but you know go and as you say you're only like 40 minutes from yeah. Trinity yeah. but it's a big change isn't it a big shift yeah yeah, yeah. even in your yeah, like the, between the country and Dublin. And the city. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And you know, like I knew all of my neighbours in. And do you know the way, like when you're driving around, uh, tip like you, you like give people like a like a <laughs> finger. finger yeah. Like um, and and I'd always like even when we go for a walk along along the canal, you'd be always saying hello to people, even if you don't know them, because I'm always afraid that like I'm supposed to know them. Uh, whereas in Dublin, I was going around saying hello to everybody. <laughs> um, and I think Brazzy said this on a podcast as well. He's like, he did the same thing in London. <laughs> I was like, that's even worse, yeah. <laughs> saying hello to people in London. But for me, Dublin was my London. <laughs> I was just so... Um, yeah, and, and the city people didn't really understand it because that was their turf. You know, and so many people in, in Trinity come from the city. So. And uh, you wrote a great article there about a month ago in the Irish Independent and you kind of talked about that time when you were in college yeah. and, you know, um, going to the doctor. Yeah. And uh, I thought that was amazing because, uh, you know, it gave a perspective about mental health that people don't talk about enough, I think, at the moment. Yeah, you know? and it's great that we're talking about mental health now. It's in a very... Um, it's like a hot topic and people are very enthusiastic to talk about it um, but we really don't know what we're talking about even when you say the words mental health they don't really sit right with me I know. Uh, it's nearly like too polite a term because um, I, I think everyone knows someone who's died from by suicide you know exactly and suicide is like the the extreme um result of of mental illness um but i, I also think we don't uh, there's there's levels of of mental illness, and I think if you can, I used to think that being miserable was normal, and um, and I think a lot of like young people do think that, especially if you're coming to, like into yourself as a, as an adult, uh, being like, okay, I'll just get a job now, um, like life is going to be grey and boring, and it needs need to get a nine to five job and and uh, and security, and what I like want to really advocate for is that like you you are in charge of your own life you're in charge of your own happiness and life is as beautiful as you make it um, and I I really want to like empower people to really just um, like live life creatively you don't have to be a creative person in order to make your life beautiful um, but yeah I, I think uh, with mental illness and um, and our society like labeling people that's a dangerous thing to do mm. because everyone uh, has a responsibility to to look after themselves and also to look after others and just be be compassionate um. but I think but also you know I've heard you say before that um, 
you know, the people who probably need help the most are the ones that don't realise it, you know. Yeah. Or getting help is so important. Yeah, because I was lucky because I, um, I suppose I was interested in it. I was interested in, uh, I was interested in psychology and uh, when finally I got a diagnosis after like, I think it took four years maybe of uh, going to the doctor with them. Um, I used to get a lot of colds, a lot of viruses, and obviously your physical health is going to be impacted if, if your mental health is is poor. Um, and I remember getting a diagnosis finally of of, um, of depression and anxiety, but that only happened when I couldn't sleep one night and I went into my mom and dad's room um, and I told them like I, I couldn't imagine living anymore. Um, and I wasn't suicidal, I just was, really afraid. I was afraid that I'd uh, be at home for the rest of my life and completely paralysed and I was afraid that the writing would never work out and I was afraid of everything really and it was only then that uh, my dad actually went to his GP and told him that he was worried about me and his GP said bring her down to me and he um, he spoke to me and that was the first human connection that I had in in the medical or, or psychiatric profession. Uh, I remember him, he made me laugh and... Uh, he talked and about horses he and talked about horses. racing. Yeah, and racing. And, and I hated horses and racing. But seeing how much he loved it, I was like, oh, like that, that like, fair play to you. Uh, and then he kind of like encouraged me to, to like find like my own grawn and, and passions and stuff. I really liked that what he, because at the time, I think you were finding it difficult to write. Yeah. But absolutely. he recommended you to read a book, didn't yeah. he? Marion yeah, Keyes. Who's yeah. now on the front cover of your yeah. book. That's amazing, yeah. isn't it? And it was a Christmas day when she gave me the blurb for, for the book. Was it? Christmas day. And uh, I, like, I couldn't believe it. It was like all my Christmases. Does she know that story, I wonder? Yeah, she, does. she does. Oh, I told her. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's brilliant. I yeah. mean, it's, it shows you the power of good. You know, I've actually seen you say that that um, uh, literature helps you. you Absolutely, know? Yeah. yeah. I remember a pre-interview for one of the interviews. Um, the researcher was like, uh, "Okay, so um, what's your book about?" And I was like, I told him I gave him the, the spiel, and then he was like, "Yeah, um, and uh, you gave uh, you said that books books saved your life. What's that about?" <laughs> <laughs> and I was kind of like, okay, I'll just go straight into it. How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, they're bulletproof. Um, <laughs> uh, and yeah, well, books provided like a real essential connection to me at a time where I was really lonely. Um, so one of my favourite books is Just, Ki just Kids by Patti Smith. Um, and it's my Desert Island book because uh, she's someone that I made it sounds silly, but I made friends with her when I when I read that book, mm. and it, that's something magical that books can do. You can see a person's soul, you know, on on the page, especially because it's her memoir and she's talking about um, her relationship with Robert Maplethorpe, who's a who's a photographer, and they just went to New York when they were kids and fell in love, and then they realized that he was gay, and so they became like best friends and. Reading that book showed me um, how to be a better friend to people. And that's something that, um, like a lot of people say they read books for entertainment or something to bring in their holidays or, um, 
or just to just to laugh or escape and and books aren't an escape for me they're they're a connection to to real life um, and I've met so many people through through the pages of books that like people who are alive and people who are dead that yeah. are like mean so much so much to me yeah. and like I know you, you love Joni Mitchell as well in her own words yeah. and in that book like she talks about um, her sixth sense, she kind of says her five senses are on fire and her sixth sense, she kind of said um, that because she, she had depression when she was younger, yeah. but she felt like that helped her with her writing. She said it was important. Yeah, that, that was, um, I, loved, I loved what she said about that because uh, like there's a power in, in that vulnerability. Um, and there's so many people who, who ask uh, if there's a connection between art and what we now call mental illness or, or depression or whatever um, but she says she says in that book as well uh, that if you get treatment for depression and you're just put on drugs then you're still going to be just an asshole on drugs <laughs> <laughs> and she was like uh, if I had she was like the reason I had depression was because there was some sort of spiritual unease within me and um, and I had to go into myself to kind of work on that. Um, and I think that's what she means. Like, when I say that uh, writing is emotional work, that's really what I mean. Um, you kind of have to work on, you're figuring out questions all the time because nobody knows anything, True. really. Like she had a great line, she said, uh, you're drawing on the toxicity inside of you. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's draining then, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and there's good and bad in everyone, you know. Um, but do you think that's part, like, do you need, you know, like people say, like, particularly for songs, you know, that it's when you're sad that you're more inspired. Do you, do you believe that or not? Oh, I think struggle makes great art. Um, when I was sad or, or depressed, I wasn't writing. <laughs> yeah. um, I find it very difficult. I find it really difficult even to read. Um, but going through uh, an emotional struggle, uh, like that's why there's so many songs about breakups, yeah. you know, yeah. people re like eating loads of ice cream and then getting the guitar out and and it's kind of like a, it's a power thing, it's re reclaiming your, your experience um, and that was definitely the same for me, like um, like I, I struggled in college and, and this novel is me sort of reclaiming that experience exactly. um, and reclaiming uh, my own experiences of of finding it difficult to to navigate life in all of the characters not just debbie exactly um, and those characters um they taught me loads that i didn't know before so and i think you really got that across i mean that was your plan and you, you definitely achieved that Thanks. so the last question that i'm going to ask you because i always ask everyone yeah. um as you know like the last time you were on i asked you for your happy place and yeah. it was in Ishir at that time which is a very special yeah. place and actually that's how i discovered you was a amazing short story that you wrote about in Ishir. Yeah. i feel like um you know a guy who discovers a band before their demo <laughs> comes out that was me <laughs> so my last question then is if you close your eyes and take four deep breaths where is your other happy place and why? Okay. Um, my other happy place is very near where I live. Um, it's uh, about a kilometre down the road and it's a hill. Um, it's a hill that looks into the valley of Newtown um, and Kappa, our local GAA, 
um, it's new clubhouses there. Um, the steeple of the church is is like the the main <laughs> uh, feature of, of that view. Um, we call it Marion's Hill because Marion lives at, at the top of it. Um, but the reason it's my happy place, it's a gorgeous view. Um, and the church is there and the school that I went to primary school in. Um, but the reason it's my happy place is because uh, it's where I imagine Debbie and Maeve and Billy live. Um, now there's no house at the, at the bottom of the hill, but in my, in my imagination there is. Um, and I, I pass by it nearly, nearly every day, either going for a run or a walk. Um, and it's, it's really uh, magical to think that, um, like I imagine them down there and that landscape gave me so much um, material for the book. Um, and every time that I look, look down there, I feel really proud of my home, home place and where I've come from. And also proud that like uh, the landscape has given me so much as well and enriched my life. So it's, every time I look down there, I just feel an enormous sense of, of gratitude and home, both off, off the page and on the page as well. Thank you so much, Louise, for bringing such a gorgeous book into the world and for doing the interview today. So that's it now today. Um, thank you very much for listening. Um, just to let you know, the Travel Tales with Fergal podcast season one and two are on all podcasting platforms now. And season three will be coming out towards the end of the summer. Thank you again for listening. I want to thank Louise Nealon for doing that interview with us. I really enjoyed it and I hope you did it as well. And I want to thank everybody at the Clamell Junction Festival for their support for this podcast. And I really look forward to the festival again next year. I would ask you to subscribe to this podcast and also to the Travel Tales with Fergal podcast so that you'll be the first to know when a new episode comes out in September. Take care and safe travels.